the first programme of the new year. Happy New Year to you and plenty on your radio today from builders backsides to Egyptian vultures and made in Chelsea. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. The rogue builders aren't out there as much as they used to be. There is still a few of them um, but uh, most most guys are out there. They're, they've got good uh, skills and, and they're, they're good uh, business people as well so I think that's the way we should be really getting represented rather than the old builders bum sticking out the back of a pair of jeans you know. Do we know whose bum we're looking at here? I know that education is so so important but I mean we've had closures before in much less severe circumstances than we have now and I think that a three week break might be sensible at this stage to allow the worst of this peak to, to pass. And let's start out with this issue on the live line. Katie Hannan didn't know where to look. Well I am looking at a picture a photograph right now of a builder's bum. There's no other way to describe it. Uh, this is an ad from uh, tradesman.ie. That's a, a an online um, service where you can get f- quotes if you want to have a, a tradesman uh, do a job for you. Um, and as I say, it's a picture of a rear end of, I suppose, uh, a figure that's alleged to be a tradesman. And the uh, tagline on this ad, which was tweeted again this morning, is thankfully his quote was also low. Peter Finn, good afternoon to you. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> Peter, uh, people of course will know Peter from uh, that absolutely brilliant programme Home Rescue with Roisin Murphy. Um, Peter, what do you make of this? <laughs> <laughs> well, the first thing I'd like to say is it's definitely not my backside as you're looking at there. Um, although I, we I have, have seen a bit a of your backside, Peter, though. <laughs> <laughs> I know, in all seriousness, it's... Uh, it's a bit of PR going crazy there. I think, yeah, um, like, there's a lot of things wrong with the photograph apart from the the, the view of the whole of the moon. Let's say um, <laughs> there's uh, the, 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 the 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 tradesman, or if that's what he is uh, in the picture, is wearing a pair of jeans, which is very very uh, unlike tradespeople these days. Um, like, there's just so much so much workwear out there that is is uh, is what people wear on building sites. Put it this way: if a guy arrived to, to one of my building sites dressed like that, I'd uh, I'll be having a, a second guess and, and, and ask him, really, is he here to do a bit of work or, or, or was he here to do at all, you know? Really? I, I, just, I wouldn't have thought that now with jeans. I thought, I'm sure if a tradesman turned up in jeans. Uh, are you saying that's, that's, that's going out now? Yeah, it was not no doubt about. Look, here, you know, trades uh, people come in all shapes and sizes. Um, the, the other thing in that photograph is as well, he has a few tools in his back pocket, which uh, he has a wire brush there. And I think if he sits down for his lunch, he he might have an uncomfortable lunch because it's uh, <laughs> it's positioned in a very very peculiar place. Um, look, the, the 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 health and safety standards have gone, you know, up so many different levels in 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 Ireland and across the the globe. But uh, you know, along with his tools and uh, workwear has has gone, you know, really up the scales as well. So there's so many different brands out there, some very good Irish brands. And then a lot, a lot of the big hitters, like I wear Heli Hansen gear and then like there's, there's it's exceptionally good stuff. It's basically a cross between um, mountain walking gear and and uh, trades work as well. It's got lots of different pockets in the right places that you can put tools in um, and very comfortable to wear as well. And they've got other safety features in them. So, you know, today, today an age of, of a guy uh, turning up in jeans is gone. Not, not fully gone, but it's definitely on the way out and um, I think that, that photograph doesn't represent us too well at all you know Yeah do you think I mean obviously the idea was that it was something that would catch your eye you know uh, <laughs> and I think we all we're all or familiar with the, with the concept <laughs> of the builder's bum uh, yeah. but uh, um, but it, it 
do you think there's anything wrong with it? Really? Yeah, look, it's it's somebody trying to do a bit of PR of it. Like uh, some of the other stuff you've got, you know, really really clean, hunky builders there, uh, you know, with their with their screw guns doing different things as well. So you know, there's lots of different options there that they've used for their marketing. But I think that one was definitely one of those ones to try and catch your eye and maybe be something a little bit outspoken or or get people like us to talk about it on the radio. So maybe they've actually succeeded in what they're going to do. But it certainly isn't uh, something that I would be liking to represent my company or, or anything that I do. I think uh, the, the day and age of that type of thing is gone. I think. The stereotypical uh, builder who you know has his breakfast roll and goes around unhealthy is kind of gone. And um, there's a, a lot of very fit and healthy men on sites. And <laughs> they uh, they wouldn't like to think of themselves uh, to to be represented by that photograph anyway. You know. Do you think that? Do you think? Do you think it actually might? You know that there are tradesmen out there that might actually take genuine umbrage at this image representing look- them. If you're going to work on the building site, you have to have a thick skin because, you know yourself, there's a lot of banter happens on, on building sites. I'd say, I'd say lads are probably getting a bit more crack out of it than, than taking umbrage to it. But you never know. You never know in this, in this sensitive world that we live in these days. But, um, and oh, look, I, I, I really do think that uh, there's, there's just so much positive stuff going on in construction these days. And, like, you know, we're all much more aware of our mental health and also, also our, our own physical health as well. And I think, again, that photograph isn't really representing somebody that's in a very good physical condition to come in and do a bit of work on your home but um look it is what it is it's 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 a bit of it's a bit of crack but uh, I, I certainly it's it's like the, the ad on the telly where the, the cowboy turns up to do the to do the uh, the bit of electrical work and oh, yeah. you know the lady the lady sends him away i think i think that's that's what that photograph is is predicting more than uh, more than you know a, a tradesman is going to come in and do a good job yeah yeah do you think it reinforces that idea of rogue traders yeah, it does a little bit. It's kind of it reminds me. Of, did you ever see the, the film The Money Pit years ago, where all the, the Hell's Angels turned up to do the the, the work on, on the house that time, and the house started falling apart, and they finally got it back together again. It looks a bit like that, but um, and oh, look, as I said, like we're taking serious steps forward in construction, and I think uh, the old stereotypical stuff should be kind of left behind a little bit because we do we do we do a lot of real positive stuff happening. Um, in terms of we're taking great advances forward in in terms of the quality of work that can be done, and you know the the road builders aren't out there as much as they used to be. There is still a few of them um, but uh, most most guys are out there they're, they've got good uh, skills and, and they're, they're good uh, business people as well so I think that's the way we should be really getting represented rather than the old builder's bum sticking out the back of a pair of jeans you know Well that's Peter then Oliver Dempsey the owner and manager of tradesman.ie spoke to Katie Who came up with this ad Oliver? Would you believe would you believe I, I, yesterday my father rang me and he says uh, he says uh, I was listening to the advertisements for the Joe Duffy show and he says uh, there's, a, there's a tradesman uh, website and of course we're we're tradesmen that's M-E-N dot E so I said to him says, I, ah, no that's not us says, I, that's, that must be somebody else and I, no he said I think it's you and I said no so anyway your, your researcher rang me there before dinner and he says uh, I'm ringing you about the, the ad and I said oh yeah my father was telling me about that uh, that's not us that's, that's somebody else and, no no he says uh, let, let me check uh, no that's you that's you Right, so I'll, I'll have a look here. So, so I, I looked at it, and uh, it was on Twitter. Now, we, <laughs> we, we, there's, uh, there's a long story behind it, I suppose. But a number of years ago, we won a a, a prize uh, for a, a competition, and we won a certain amount of uh, funding for um, agency work for advertising and marketing and stuff like that. And 
we had a we, we had a, an advertising agency with a newspaper and with the graphic designers and different people came together and they said, right, we'll we we'll come up with something for you. And they came up with this, uh, and uh, <laughs> they will. They came up with a few concepts. And um, anyway, this was one of them. It wasn't my favorite, but um, anyway. Uh, in in the end, they all persuaded me this was the one to go for. <laughs> who's they so, all? Who's they all now, Oliver? Who are we blaming? <laughs> so I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm blaming the experts that were advertising or that were uh, <laughs> that, 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 that were advising me. <laughs> who who did you get to do the modelling, Oliver? That's that's what I want to know. Oh, yeah, who yeah, yeah. oh yeah, who do do we know whose bum we're looking at here? No, no, that's a good that's a good question. I don't. I I maybe they uh, maybe did they. They did tell me at the time who it was. It, it, it might have been someone in, in their office, maybe. Oh my God. I'm, I'm, sh- I'm sure he's gone on and done a, a lot of other modelling in his career from, from look at that picture. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I agree with Peter. Uh, I think, uh, you know, the, the, the proper work clauses <laughs> in this day and age would be would be better now at this stage. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and are you, are you a, were you a tradesman yourself? I mean, this is obviously a company for, for uh, getting quotes from, from other tradesmen, but... Were, yeah. Are you? Uh, is this your own background, Oliver? Uh, well, I'm actually from a farming background myself, so uh, I, I, I would have been used to wearing uh, good work trousers. <laughs> I was going to say that's a that's a, an area where you need you understand the the need for decent workwear. Uh, but uh, so you you're not a tradesman yourself, then? No, no. So um, I um, uh, I suppose um, I had a, a, a web and software uh, development business uh, a number of years ago and we developed software for auctioneers and real estate agents and websites, different things like that. And when the downturn came in 2008, I had a number of people employed uh, and, uh, you know, it was a real... The whole thing just crashed and I was left in a position where... I was uh, wondering how I was going to pay my employees, so I um, I had to quickly try and think of something, and this is what I came up with, and uh, we put it together, and thankfully it was a success, and you know we've been going from strength to strength ever since. Um, so you know we've been lucky, I suppose. Oliver Dempsey and Peter Finn on the live line with Katie Hannon. And in the morning, Bazaj Mawi was talking about some new species arriving to our shores as a result of milder weather with David Wall of the National Biodiversity Centre. So the National Biodiversity Data Centre, a lot of what we do is what has become known as citizen science. So basically what it is, is we ask members of the public to submit their records, their sightings, their photos of various wildlife. So the particular projects I'm involved in were were funded by the EPA, who are interested in looking at wildlife as indicators of things like climate change and water quality. Um, And we're looking specifically at dragonflies and damselflies and also at marine animals. But the Biodiversity Data Centre looks at all different species, so we've butterfly surveys and bee surveys and badger surveys and you name it, we've got it. Well, and you have to be fairly scientifically robust in your insight to, I suppose, track change in Ireland's biodiversity because it is changing, right? 
It is changing and I suppose a good indicator, one that I'm familiar with, is of dragonflies. So dragonflies, for those who don't know what they are, are beautiful, big, generally big flies, very colourful. Um, they have a short flight period during the summer, so they're very linked to temperature. They're a tropical and subtropical species, really, for the most part. But they like warm temperatures and sunny days. So they do well when it's hottest. Right. Um, for example, we have a couple of species, one called the emperor dragonfly and one called the migrant hawker. And 20 years ago, we did a big survey called Dragonfly Ireland. And at that time, they were just arriving on our southern and southeastern shores. They just got a foothold or a wing hold or a claw hold on the south coast. And they were just appearing, having coming over, come over from the continent. Um, Currently, we're doing a repeat survey, a five-year survey, uh, again, funded by the, the EPA, and we are starting to see, well, we're happy to see that these animals have spread as far north and indeed even further north than Belfast and as far northwest as Galway. So wow. they're spreading in a line kind of northwestward across Ireland. And we're pretty sure this is linked to increased average annual temperatures that we're experiencing here. That's amazing because I saw as well, I saw Portuguese man-of-wars have been making headlines in, in recent years and they they appear on our shores as well. Uh, are, are, are these another recent arrival or have they been coming for they a while? Are, a species that perhaps not quite as popular as, as beautiful dragonflies and damselflies, mm. but they are still a beautiful animal, albeit with a sting um, that they can give you. But really, prior to 2016, we have no records of them at the data centre. It's not to say they weren't here in ones and twos along the south coast, but certainly since 2016, and especially since 2019, we've been picking them up in quite significant numbers right along the south coast and the southwest coast, kind of as far north as Galway. Um, and again, we think that's possibly or probably due to changes induced by climate change, either changes to ocean currents or just increased water temperatures. And are you seeing kind of similar similar kind of trends in other certain species of fish or is it just it was it just the man of wars? Yeah, I mean, across a whole range of different fish species, it's a bit of a different um, picture than the land-based animals because it, the trend, as I said, for dragonflies and damselflies is they're moving northwest across the country. The trend for marine species, they kind of shift northeastward. I'm not, you know, they're influenced by other factors such as the, the the Gulf Stream, for example. But we have been noticing in recent years an increase in what we would have previously considered warmer water species, species like sardines, species like pilchard and triggerfish like that. And also you'll have read in the news that it's infecting some commercial fish stocks. So, for example, Atlantic mackerel. Um, has changed, its distribution has changed significantly in the last few years uh, with a northward shift and that's playing all sorts of havoc with uh, fisheries quotas and whatnot. Right, and it's, of course it's, it's, it's not just all new arrivals either, is it? Because what's been happening with the, the white-beaked dolphin? Well, the white-beaked dolphin is a species that probably a lot of people won't have heard of, but maybe 20 or 30 or 40 years ago, you might have had a better chance of hearing of it. It's a species, quite a big dolphin species, with a white-beaked, obviously, based on its name, that lives in shallow waters around the coast. So in the North Sea, it's found off the Aberdeen coast, places like that. But it would have once been fairly common around the Irish coastline, but today we rarely see it. We sometimes pick it up off the northwest coast, but not so much, and even in our 
strandings records. We've very few strandings. And we think what's happening is that the white-beaked dolphin is a cold, what we call a cold, temperate water species. And it's been hit by a double whammy. Number one, the seas are warming up, so it's less to its liking. It's a cold water species. It likes colder water. So it's shifting northwards with the, the change in temperature. But also from the south are coming warmer water species, such as the common dolphin. And the common dolphin is, looks like it's out-competing the white-beaked dolphin wherever the two meet. So you can see how climate change can have a major impact on a species like that. And indeed, as the white-beaked dolphin retracts northwards, it's running out of space. Because as you go further north in Europe, there's less and less shallow water habitats. And so eventually, maybe in 100 years' time, we could see the white-beaked dolphin facing, uh, you know, a critical point in its future in that it runs out of habitat as the water is so sad. Uh, That's tragic. So Baz asked Dave about the Egyptian vulture spotted in Roscommon. There's a difference between a one-off and a trend. So you'll, you'll from now on, time to time, we get one-offs, like we've had um, bowhead whale, which is an Arctic species, pop up off our coast. We've had um, beluga whale pop up off the coast. Last year, we had wally, and we've Egyptian vultures, but they're one-offs. So we wouldn't uh, necessarily link that to a, a particular trend. or They're a not like Irish roofers, thing. where one arrives and then they get on the blower, then be 25 of them over next year. No. Well, you never know, because obviously one has to arrive at some point. So what we would look for then is a trend in the data. So we'd look for increasing numbers over time. So if, let's say next year, we've five Egyptian vultures and the year after we've got 25 of them, then we're starting to see a trend. And that's why it's so important people keep sending in their records to the National Biodiversity Data Centre, whatever species it is. Because you the you more mentioned data that, we have, the more we can look at those trends. You mentioned that, David. You mentioned, I think, what did you call it? The, the citizen science? Is that what you, you said? Citizen science is all the rage these days. But it, it's a great tool yeah. for us because what we have is thousands, millions of feet on the ground right across Ireland. Something we could never do on our own and something researchers can't do as, as small groups. We've all these people eyes on the ground everywhere and all they have to do is submit their records and together when we get those records in we validate them and they give us an overall picture of what the distribution of the various species is. That's David Wall with Baz Ajmawi in the morning. Then later, Aina Nilauna was talking to Brian Dobson about the swallows that never left for winter. Now, one swallow does not make a summer, is the old saying, but more and more of these birds are being spotted here in Ireland during the winter months at a time when they are expected to have long since flown south. Keen bird watchers have been posting pictures of them in recent weeks. Let's talk to author and environmentalist Aidan Nilano, who's on the line now. Very good afternoon, Aidan. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Not so, at all. Good so, to talk to you, Brian. So tell us, what is going on here? Are these just a few strays who, for whatever reason, forgot to, to take off and head back to the the Sahara or, or Southern Africa or, or is well, there something else going on? Well, who knows? I mean, the thing is that every year, every year actually, there's always um, pictures of swallows that have been left behind. And these are genuine swallows. I mean, it's not people mistaking them for something else. The photographs have come in from very well-recognised bird watchers. Swallows are supposed to go away in October when the days start getting shorter. There's, there's this genetic thing. They're stimulated by the shortening days and they go while they're still food, while they're still full, while they still have loads of fat to get them all the way to South Africa. So the ones that didn't 
go wasn't because that was a warm autumn and they didn't go. They, they genetically weren't programmed to do this. Something went wrong with their genetic, their genetic vibes, that they, the genetic programming, and they just didn't go. They stayed around. And because it had such a mild autumn and such a mild December, there's been lots of insects for them to feed on. So you can get pictures of them down in Wexford mm. or down in Cork or Clare at this time of the year and they're still catching insects. Now, they can only eat insects, so you can't have them coming to your bird table or you can't be giving them worms or berries or anything like that. They don't do that. They just mm. have aerial feeders. And if there's no insects for them because of the cold weather, they will starve to death. And we won't see their dead bodies anywhere. We won't know what happened to them. We won't know if the ones we see in spring are the ones that came from Africa. They don't have passports mm. or COVID passports or anything <laughs> like that. We won't know if they survived or not. But we will know if they do because there'll be more and more swallows with that genetic imprint staying over winter. This is what the bird watch people tell me anyway. Right, so so we're, we're seeing them now here in the the early days of January, not because it's unusual that it's some of the, some of these birds don't travel south back in October, but because perhaps in previous years they wouldn't have survived this long. Conditions would have, wouldn't have allowed them to. That's right, yeah, because I mean, what, what, it's not so much the cold because they don't feed at night when it's really cold birds feed during the daytime except for owls but um, what happens is they have to feed on the insects up in the air and if it's so cold that there are no insects well then even though they survive the night they, they won't be able to get any food so it's the supply of food that will affect them so I mean while it was very cold last night is it warm enough today on the south coast are there some insects around that they can feed on mm. you know that's that's the kernel of the matter so some, some might actually make food it for them to last some might make it through the winter then they might well do indeed mm. and if they do well then you know they, 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 their genes tell them don't go and this is how things mm. change. I mean we have little egrets all around the coast now that big white heron and that wasn't here 30 years ago it was only in Spain but they began to stay as winter visitors then they began to breed and now they're part of our fauna and that's because of climate change it got warm enough for that so there's always a few hardy people at the mm -hmm. beginning a few hardy birds saying let's let's seek and we make a go of this and eventually if the situation is good well then it will take so if if there are insects here over the winter there will yeah. be swallows to take advantage of it and then they'll have an advantage when spring comes and they'll be able to have more offspring than the ones puffing right. up all the way from <laughs> Africa in March and April Aina Nilano from The News at One with Brian Dobson. And on today with Philip Badger Hayes, the reopening of schools. Here's school principal Caroline Quinn of Our Lady of Good Council in South Dublin. How many staff are you short? Uh, so we're, we're short five mainstream teachers tomorrow out of 16 mainstream classes. Wow. OK, so is the school still viable at that kind of level? Uh, we're going to meet with our leadership and management team now at 11 and look at what, you know, creative solutions we can put in place in order to have all the children in the classes in the morning. Um, as Brian has alluded to, it will mean the redeployment of the support team. Uh, this is not ideal. It has been happening before Christmas. And as you can imagine, it means that the most vulnerable learners in the school are without their support teachers. Which has a knock-on impact on classes, I would imagine. Of course it does. And, I mean, you know, we're already uh, trying to fill gaps in learning that have been happening for, you know, since March 2020. Um, so, you know, it is a fair challenge. The, the staffing crisis is huge for school leaders all over the country. How have you found the process of both purchasing and installing HEPA filters? 
well, I suppose the, the information came to us at a very late stage before Christmas when we were already grappling with all the other uh, staffing issues and that. So our first port of call was to learn about HEPA filters. This is not our area of expertise by any means. Uh, and we're conscious that we're spending public monies. So, you know, procurement process has to be done and has to be done properly. Um, in order to learn about that, various companies visited the school, um, looked at the size of the classrooms. We're in a 1967 building, uh, which the classrooms are about 48 square metres, not the 80 that we seem to hear about all day yesterday on the various media channels. Uh, so small classrooms, 29 children and two adults probably in most rooms. Uh, so we got the various companies in, got them to look at uh, what might be required in our rooms. And what, was, and the, we what were, was the biggest quote? What was the most expensive? Well, we were gobsmacked. To, one was 88,000. Oh, my God. Did you get, so, did you get mean, another? We did get another one. The second one was 45. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> That's um, a big jump. The money is the available to us in our own school was around 21,000. So that was our minor works grant that comes annually okay. with so, a 50% So th- there's a shortfall of 24 grand that you would have to make up yourselves? Well, there is. But remember that the minor works grant is for repairs to the school building throughout the year. So that will mean that goes aside in order to try and buy HEPA filters. Um, the added complication then, of course, is a lot of these companies closed on December the 17th. So we're just trying to get back to all of that now. And as Brian said, the Board of Management will require then some professional advice to look at these quotes and uh, to advise us. So it's, it's not a quick okay. fix. No, 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 definitely not a quick fix. Just one of the other issues then, contact tracing. Would you like to see it return? Absolutely. I mean, there is no question. Brian has already mentioned this, but, you know, we really were left uh, when this was removed at the end of September. It's beyond our comprehension as to why this happened. Uh, Are you effectively doing that job now, Caroline? Yes. Yeah, we've been doing that job for the last while, since the end of September. Um, and it's, you know, it's not, it's neither our area of expertise, nor is it what a school leader should be spending mm. their time on, really. You nor know? is it appropriate for you to be asking medical questions of families, is it really? Absolutely not. It's beyond our remit. And another principal was also on the line. John Weir is principal of St Mary's Parish Primary School in Drogheda. Good morning to you, John. Uh, how many teachers are you down? Morning, Philip. Um, we're down eight classroom teachers. That's twenty percent of our cohort and three SNAs at the moment. Um, I think we were. I, I'm apprehensive. I suppose it would be a, a nice way of saying it. But um, can you move the deck chairs to cover? That will have to be. Will have to happen. And just as Caroline said, we will have to redeploy um, some of our support staff. I mean, we've looked for uh, subs from the various panels. They just don't exist. Um, we managed to get one substitute teacher all right a girl who is just home for for christmas uh, from abroad so we have her coming in but uh so that will get us maybe you know that'll start okay. us, we'll well, what about the panel of student teachers are you not able to get anybody from that we haven't been able to get i haven't been able to get any at the moment i understand that they may not be available on thursday friday but we have managed to procure some for next week um, i suppose that is my biggest worry is like you know while we're looking at 20 percent you know tomorrow um, you know, and reopening is that once the children are back, once the teachers are back, how is this going to pan out over the coming weeks? It's likely to, you know, we, we saw days there before Christmas where we had 16 teachers absent on a given day. And that was before we had Omicron. So 
once that once that's added into the mix and bring all our students back, we have, we have 1,100 students here, bring all the teachers back. It's, I can't see any other way that this is going to become a, a much greater problem in the coming weeks. And when you hear the minister on Morning Ireland this morning, does it feel to you like a school principal that the, the implied message here is you're pretty much on your own here, folks? I've, the sense is that, yes, you know, we need to get back to school. Obviously, nobody wants to be out of school. We don't want to be out of school. The students don't want to be out of school. The best place to have us is back at work. And I do understand that, obviously, um, there are massive knock-on effects, you know, for parents when schools are closed in terms of childcare, and especially, you know, if you're looking at childcare for those who are involved in the medical sector, um, I can understand the importance of getting us back to school. That, that's hugely important. But uh, I, I think that's been prioritised as number one, and it's kind of like a case of getting us back in and seeing how it pans out. Um, and I suspect it's, it's not going to be a, a good outcome in the next coming weeks. It does sound or it does feel a little bit, doesn't it, like that a line from that film that was released over Christmas, uh, Don't Look Up. I don't know if you saw it, but an asteroid is hurtling towards Earth and the first reaction of Meryl Streep as the President of the United States is to sit tight and assess. Does it feel like a sit tight and assess kind of situation? Well, I just hope we don't end up, you know, as the... uh the, the final scenes of that film, we won't ruin it for anyone, but <laughs> no, no. I hope it doesn't, I, I hope it doesn't no. end up like that. Let's, but let's, really, let's not make that direct comparison <laughs> because that's definitely overstating it uh, yeah. more, more than a little. That's John Weir there. Then later, Professor Kingston Mills. Given where we are in the Omicron curve right now, would you have reopened schools? Um, I think it's a very difficult question to answer. I mean, the, the, if you look at the, the case numbers in that age group, the under 12s, um, up to the 20, the only data that's available is up to the 24th of December. And there were around um, 12,000 cases in Ireland in, in the two-week period up to the 24th of December. Now, if you looked in the previous um, uh, period during the, when the schools were open, the numbers were actually higher. And um, uh, so I, I, I don't, I, I agree with your previous contributor. Uh, the mantra that, that schools are a safe environment and there's not transmission in schools, I don't know where that is coming from because I, I can't see the scientific evidence to suggest that a virus won't transmit in a school and, and it would somehow transmit in somebody's home. So, so you know, notwithstanding all the measures about HEPA filters and ventilation, etc., this is a very transmissible virus. And um, I know that if somebody is infected in a room, it's very difficult to stop other people getting infected. So that's the science as far as I'm concerned. And um, I don't you know, want to make suggestions of whether schools should or shouldn't open. But uh, what I would say is if, if schools do open, we, ex- we should expect to see significant numbers of cases amongst um, primary school children and teachers. Okay, so I can understand why you're reluctant to start straying into uh, educational policy advice, but would it be safer to limit contacts in the under 12s until such time as the greater number of them possible have received a first, sorry, not a, a second jab? 
Yes, I mean, I think there's two, there's two issues here. First of all, the, the, the current wave, uh, you know, it's, it's likely that it's going to peak um, in the next week or so. Um, this is what all the predictions are. I'm not, I'm not an epidemiologist, so this is what they're telling us. Um, and if that's the case, and if you look at the way the, the, the waves went in, for example, um, uh, Denmark and in South Africa, the, the, it peaked and then it dropped very quickly. So the numbers of uh, we would hope that we have a similar pattern here. So the numbers will peak and then drop very quickly. So the, there could be a sort of a two week period okay. between but now and that time. But that's the general population. If yeah. the under 11s, the under 12s aren't vaccinated, you're going to see a disproportionate number of infections in that cohort, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, and it takes, I mean, you know, it's not, you know, it, 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 it's, it's, it'll be five weeks or, or thereabouts from the start of vaccination until a child is immune. And even then with two doses and remembering the two doses in adults um, might prevent severe disease. It's not going to prevent infection. So you're still going to have transmission amongst adults, at least, that are doubly vaccinated. It's really only when they're boosted that the real benefit comes in. I mean, some really interesting data came out of the the the, the, the UK in the last day or two about ICUs, ICU admissions. Um, 60% of people in ICU in the UK have had no vaccine at all. And 90% of people in ICUs had, had not been boosted. So that's showing the huge benefit of preventing very severe disease with, with three doses and, and, and somewhat a good benefit also with two. So if you extrapolate that back to children, you'd need, you're going to need at least two doses to get a benefit. So one dose would have minimal benefit, although children will respond probably better to the vaccine than adults. So you will probably get okay. some so benefit. So you would be talking one. about very significant disruption to their schooling if we were to wait until such time as you had the majority of that cohort. Yeah, you're talking jabbed. about a few months. So you couldn't yeah. do that. But I think I, I think what's probably more important is that if, if the numbers nationally decline in, we'll say, two or three weeks' time, then, you know, the, the, the general circulation in the population, including school children, their parents and their okay. teachers will have declined. So everything will be in a much better position. So why not, you know, take a, a two or three week period of which to assess things rather than rush back into, I mean, I know that education is so, so important, but I mean, we've had closures before in much less severe circumstances than we have now. And I think that a three week break might be sensible at this stage to allow the worst of this peak to, to pass. Professor Kingston Mills with Philip Outer Hayes in the morning and in the afternoon, Brian Dobson was talking about those new antiviral drugs. Tishik, as we've been hearing, has confirmed this lunchtime that there'll be engagement on the procurement of antiviral drugs to treat people who have contracted uh, the coronavirus. Health Minister Stephen Donnelly have been seeking approval for the purchase of €90 million Euro in COVID antiviral pills at this morning's Cabinet meeting. For more on how these medications work and why they could be useful in the fight against the virus, let's talk to Dr Anne Moore, Senior Lecturer in the School of Biochemistry at University College Cork. A very good afternoon to you, Dr Moore, and welcome once again to the programme. Good afternoon, Brian. So tell us about these antivirals. They've only really been developed in the last number of months in response to the the pandemic. Um, What of these, the tests that have been carried out at this stage, tell us about how effective they can be? Well, some of these drugs have been developed long before uh, COVID for other virus indications and the the threat of other epidemics or, or pandemics caused by viruses. Um, The clinical trials that were conducted um, have shown us for the Pfizer drug um, that it's uh, 89% effective and for the the Merck drug it's about 
30 to 50% effective. And these trials were carried out in people who have a high risk of getting severe disease. So people with diabetes or overweight or cardiovascular um, disease. And it showed that um, people who took the drug very early after they were diagnosed with a, a COVID infection, um, much fewer, significantly fewer of them uh, were hospitalized compared to those who didn't take the drug. So it, it, it does demonstrate that we now have some drugs that are kind of at the next line after vaccines. So if, if the vaccine doesn't work uh, for those at high risk, um, taking this soon after diagnosis with an infection um, should uh, significantly decrease your risk of getting a more severe illness and putting you in the hospital. And that's good news for both the patients and uh, for healthcare overall. So the key then is, is early application of this drug. The, the later it's left, the less effective these medications are. Is that the case? Uh, more than likely. I mean, it is really important that it's taken as, as soon as possible. So each day that goes by, the virus is growing more and more and the, the number of virus particles in the body increases. So you want to get that drug in there as soon as you can to, to knock it on the head as early as possible. And does it make any difference to outcomes whether somebody has been vaccinated or, or not? Um, all things being equal. Well, in the trial, it was actually people who were um, unvaccinated. So it works really well in the unvaccinated. But again, you know, it is a second line. Of, uh, well, it's probably a third line. The first line is, is non-pharmaceutical interventions, such as, you know, the, the um, uh, social distancing. And our second line then is vaccination. And our third line then will be, will be these drugs to try and keep you out of hospital. So they, they work in the unvaccinated and they more than likely work in the vaccinated as well. But the data needs to, to come forth with, about that. I'm, I'm told that uh, typically a five day course of, of this treatment would cost around 700 euro um, for, the, for those five days for the treatment. So this isn't going to be something that people will be popping down to the chemist to, to get a couple of pills if they're not feeling so well. No, absolutely not. And there has to be some uh, pharmacoeconomic modelling done as to, to see in Ireland who would benefit most from, from these drugs and also to define that there is actually a cost benefit of, of using these drugs. And again, that's, that's, that's absolutely typical for all drugs that are, that are being used in Ireland. Um, but, you know, the, the, the decision on who they will be used on is, is really critical. And they're not, definitely not popping down to your local mm. uh, uh, pharmacist for these. And as well as that, these, these uh, new drugs, they, they're incredibly effective, but they do interact with some other drugs that um, patients would, would also be taking. So it's really important that the pharmacist or the GP really looks at what other medications that, that the person is on before being able to use these new drugs. Dr. Anne Moore from The News at One with Brian Dobson. And on the Ryan Tuberty Show, Killian Hilliard, an accidental reality TV star in the UK, was talking to Baz Ajmawi about his move to London, creating jewellery and made in Chelsea. Killian Hilliard uh, moved to London in the middle of a lockdown over a year ago and ended up appearing in the hugely popular UK show called Made in Chelsea. And he's with me this morning. Good morning, Killian. Hey, Baz. How's it going? Oh, jeez. I'm great. How are you, fella? Yeah, doing good, doing good. Can't complain. Now, listen, before we get into it all, tell me just a little bit about you, your background, how you came to move to London in the middle of a lockdown. Like, tell me. Yes, I guess I'm from Bettyson in, like, County Meath and was working in finance in Dublin, so in, like, venture capital. And then always kind of wanted to make the move to a bigger city. 
So got a, a new job offer in London and, yeah, made the move over there. That, that sounds very swaggy. It sounds like something, to, uh, as a venture capitalist, probably you had to move out of Betty's Town, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, I did. Well, yeah, I was I was working in Dublin before, but, yeah, I wanted to go to the, the bright, shining lights of London. Of course, as you do, as you do. And you're a young man. What age are you? I'm 29. Okay, so, so young, youngish. No, that's great. Age twenty nine. That's living. Trust me, as an old man, that's living. That's that's a great okay. age. So tell me this. So you work in finance, finance, but you make jewelry on the side. You're a city yeah, boy who so makes jewelry. Is that right? Yeah, bit of a bit of a random one, but yeah, so my job, I like invest in tech companies. So I'm meeting entrepreneurs the whole time. So I kind of felt. A little bit like an imposter investing in entrepreneurs but not having any entrepreneurial experience. So decided I would take my hobby of designing jewellery and turn it into a little business. So it's essentially like a creative output where I can design jewellery, sell jewellery, and all the jewellery is like all handcrafted in Ireland, self-sustainable. Um, so yeah, we kind of sell online and that's going very well as well too. That's brilliant. And tell me this then, how did you... Uh, how did you end up in Made in Chelsea? How did that happen? Yeah, I definitely never expected it to happen, but I met Paris Smith, who's one of the kind of main characters on the show, and the producers always, it's a reality TV show, so they always like to Yeah, explain the show for people that don't know it, because I, I know how huge it is, but for anyone who doesn't know it, how would you describe the show? Yeah, I guess it follows the lives of people who kind of live in and around Chelsea. And I guess it's somewhat centred around a dating show. A lot is centred around relationships and the drama that comes with, comes with that. It's quite well-to-do, wealthy, go-getter, young kind of people in London, isn't it? Yeah, the, the people in London, at least, are usually defined as posh. I wouldn't right. define myself, but the other characters... Yeah. No, but you're you're, you're a looker, right? You're a very handsome man. I was looking at your Instagram. You you got it going on. So I can imagine. So how did you meet? How did you meet uh, this young lady, Paris? Yeah, so I met her the traditional way, face to face. I was in a club in Mayfair and met her on the dance floor. Did, did you use moves? The I reverse beep is. beep is a very popular uh, one in the nineties. <laughs> Maybe it doesn't work anymore. But you clicked it no, off with I, her. I, yeah. I did, yeah. Well, actually, I approached her with the... It's, it's a great move, actually. So I approached her on the dance floor and challenged her if she could Irish dance. Oh, God, and then, that's good. to my surprise, she actually could, and she was much better than me. She had so, a jig in her. That's amazing. Did, that's yeah. brilliant. So I, so I gave her my number, and, yeah, the rest so, is history. So I'm dying to know this. So how you meet this... Uh, she's obviously a beautiful young young lady as well, right? So you're attracted to her. And how did she break it to you? Did, did you know she was on this show, or did you... You had no idea, or...? Actually, another funny story. So I, I had no idea. I didn't recognise her. I watched the first few seasons, but not this one. And she actually mentioned it to me on the night I met her, because I was walking in the road, she... And sounds quite posh. So I was kind of slagging her, saying she has one of the most poshest accents I've ever heard and that she should be on Made in Chelsea. And then she replied saying, oh, I actually am on Made in Chelsea, but I didn't believe her at all. I thought she was joking. But then woke up the next morning, she followed me on Instagram and realised she was actually on Made in Chelsea. So it's quite funny. So Killian became part of the Made in Chelsea world. After we were dating for a while, she wanted me to be on the show and the kind of producers wanted me on, so I thought I'd give it a shot. Why not? 
And what was it like being on a reality TV? I can't imagine. Like, and do you, are you still together? Are you still are you still a couple now? Don't think we're allowed to say, but if you go onto our Instagrams, you probably have a pretty good guess. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's wow. And what's it like dating on on a reality show? What's what's being in a reality show like for anyone who hasn't done that? Yeah, it was definitely a very new experience for me. Obviously, finance background, no acting or anything like that. But it's pretty cool. Like you arrive on set, there's kind of lots going on. You're kind of centre of attention. There's cameras on you, and I was a bit worried because obviously I, I can't act. I've never acted. I never will be able to act. But you just you're allowed to just talk about ending and just there's no script, which kind of makes it a lot easier. Are you directed? Kind of, like, are you sitting in a restaurant? And they go, oh, now you you fling your pheasant soup over her and you know shout it or like is it is it is it pushed or no? You, it's just kind of organic. No, it's organic. So I think the first scene, I just walked into the restaurant. Uh, Paris and her friend Robbie was there, and we just started chatting and kind of naturally went into my background and stuff like that. And are you so you might come back? You were in the last three episodes last year, right? Correct. Yeah. And you might appear. You're not giving anything away. Yeah, I, to be to be confirmed. I don't, I don't even know. Yeah, wait yeah, to find we'll, out. We'll, we'll see. Interesting. I tell me, I, I'm just to go back. Sorry, I'm repeating myself here. Um, <laughs> you're you're being very careful. I like it. And Killian explained why he got into jewelry making. Yeah, it's, it is quite random give my background but I think it was probably like six or seven years ago this time during January it's doing a dry January and needed to fill the weekend so I saw a YouTube video on how to build a furnace to melt down like beer cans into molten aluminum my god how bored were you honestly quite quite bored to to melt down beer cans and you, you you thought I'll give this a go I gave it a go, got the molten aluminum after many tries, and then I always wanted a ring, but never just wanted to buy a random ring. I kind of wanted something somewhat special to me. Absolutely, yeah. I was like, okay, why don't I take this molten aluminum and turn it into a ring? And yeah, I did. It looked pretty horrendous, the first ring. But then quite enjoyed it. Did like a kind of six-week course on how to do jewellery and just kept practicing and making rings for people and... Yeah, I just really enjoyed it. I have a kind of creative side and it's been like a That's great, a great, great creative outlet, outlet making jewellery. Like, does that thing, it's very hip, you know, it's very cool. It's a very cool thing to be able to do. And you're now, you're now selling the jewellery and it's it's all going really well, yeah? Yeah, exactly. Selling it under the Donna Project brand. Um, we sell it all online. It kind of sells across mainly Ireland and the UK. That's kind of where we're focused on. Maybe get a few random sales all over I love it, honestly. What an exciting time you've been having during the pandemic. I've done nothing but scratch. You've been you've been making waves. And what's twenty twenty two looking like for you now? Yeah, hopefully hopefully a big year. So with the jewellery project actually, I want to start an NFT project. So have you heard of NFTs before? I have, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're 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 doing the kind of NFTs of your jewellery as well. Exactly, yeah, yeah. So that should be exciting. And it kind of combines my tech investment world with my jewellery design world. So excited to do that. And then, you know, pushing ahead with work and, yeah, generally just try and stay healthy and fit and have a, a fun and enjoyable year. That's Killian Hilliard talking to Bazaj Maui in the morning. 
And on Today with Philip Boucher Hayes, Dara McCullough was telling Philip about harvesting millions of daffodils on his farm with rampant COVID infection rates. Now, daffodil picking time is coming for my next guest, farming journalist and daffodil grower Dara McCullough. But seasonal workers coming from abroad are not vaccinated to the same level as workers here. So Dara is faced with quite a dilemma. Good morning to you, Dara. Tell us first, what did you do for last year's harvest? Uh, crossed our fingers, toes and anything else we could <laughs> and held mm. our breath um, and we got away with it. Um, so generally uh, 99% of my picking crew are from Romania and uh, I've had the same crew come back to the farm every year for the last 10 years and it's about 20 to 25 to 30 people and uh, generally they jump on a plane in sometime in early January and stay with me until sometime in late March. And uh, we comb the fields every day um, between those two points. Problem is, of course, with Romania, <laughs> they want the lowest vaccination rates in Europe. And when I sent the word uh, out to Romania before Christmas, lads, which is please get vaccinated before you come over here, it really put my mind at ease. Um, no, we're not interested. Um, and there was a lot of arm twisting and wrangling and in the heat of the hunt I've had to settle for antigen tests and I don't know if that's going to be effective or not it's going to take me a lot of time every Monday and Thursday morning but it's the best I can come up with. What was the point of resistance? Do they have specific health fears? Is this a cultural thing? What? Yeah so I I, I mean I'm no expert on vaccinations um, but I think it's uh, a sense of mistrust with the regime. And I think, you know, the further east you go and the more uh, uh, dictatorial or authoritarian the regimes have been in the past, the less uh, trust in the general populace is in those regimes and the lower the vaccinations are, uh, vaccination rates are. So you look at Hungary, you look at Romania, you look at Bulgaria, all these places have former Eastern Bloc countries um, that have very low vaccination rates. Um, and so it doesn't... <laughs> Like the last thing is for you know my Romanian pickers were suggesting, oh you know what um, we'll get the vaccination when we come to Ireland, but as a lot of Irish people know, a lot of the vaccines that we're using in Ireland are the leftovers from Romania that are going out of date and they ship over here, so they're getting the same stuff into their arm, but they'd be just happier if it was coming uh, if it's coming out of an Irish syringe. <laughs> Okay, so where does this leave you though? Can you bring them in safely? I mean, I'm sure picking is not the issue because that's an outdoor activity. It's it's accommodating all of them. Yeah, um, so they're all accommodated on my farm. Um, we have a whole series of mobile homes, kitted out, fairly basic accommodation, but it does the trick for the couple of months. Like nobody, no landlord is interested in renting out the property on a short-term let when there's a massive shortage of accommodation and prices are sky high. So if you're in the business of horticulture business where you need to rely on a lot of manual labour out in the fields, um, you're probably in the accommodation business as well. And that's just the reality Mm. of modern life in Ireland. So um, they're kind of in bubbles basically in each of their mobile homes. So like we say four or five people to a mobile home and they get into a car in the morning, they go to the field, they come uh, back in the same car. That's their bubble. And 
that's the only thing I can do now. Look, they're all out in the fields. Um, you know, I can't put up fences in between them that, you know, one gang isn't allowed to talk to the next crew. They're all kind of uncles and cousins and brothers and sisters and everything else. So, you know, they are chatting. They're, you know, having a smoke in, on their breaks. They're sharing coffee. So... Yeah, uh, again, we're going to be crossing all our fingers and toes and hoping for the best. And Philip asked Dara about Irish workers. Try not to laugh too hard at the answer to my next question, please. Have you tried training Irish people to do this job? Um, ha. <laughs> well, I say you have because um, during the last recession back in 2010, 2011, 2012, I had a field, a 23-acre field beside a really busy road, a road where there's about 20,000 cars go by a day. And it was basically like a 23-acre billboard that said, we grow daffodils and there was people out picking every spring and, you know, there's work here. I... Every year I get phone calls from Eastern Europe, from all over the place saying, hello, you have jobs? Yeah, um, yeah, I have jobs. Um, okay, we're coming. Grand, here's the race and this is the accommodation and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, no problem. We're on the way. So I never got a single call from an Irish person during the recession. I, I don't say this as, you know, finger wagging or like that. You know, this is a sign of a strong economy where people have choices. But the reality, Philip, is that Irish people don't want to pick daffodils or work in fields where, you know, we're harvesting crops. Can you blame them, though, I wonder? This doesn't sound like it's easy work. It's work that does require a level of skill. But are these people bent double all day long? Sure. I mean, this is what is commonly known as backbreaking work, uh, Philip. Um, so you are, it, it, like, these guys are like athletes. They're fit as fiddles and uh, they leave you and me for dust in the field. Um, so it is, there is a skill, there is a, a, a physical ability to it. Um, and, and so, you know, Irish people have choices to pick jobs that are easier or higher paying. And I, you know, there's no point in me cursing the darkness about this. Um, I remember maybe was it when COVID first broke out, and there was a big furore over, and um, was it Keelings who um, were. Uh, bringing in a whole pile of workers because that's who they depended on traditionally for getting their, their strawberries picked. And it was big Ferrari over, what are you doing bringing in all these people? There were, you know, people being laid off and uh, Irish people would love to do this work. And so Keenan's advertised for the jobs and a handful of Irish people turned up. Um, so, look, that's, uh, it's, as I say, it's not finger wagging. I'm yeah. not saying, yeah, those, you know, those are the, the Irish people are lazy or anything like that. Okay. Um, one last question. I'm absolutely amazed at the numbers here. You are aiming to pick over the course of the next two and a half, three months 12 million daffodils 12 million yeah. stems have yeah. you the entire Irish market cornered with 12 million stems or, or, or how many picked daffodils represents uh, Irish production? Yeah, um, so my claim to fame as a daffodil grower is I'm the fifth largest daffodil grower in Ireland and there happens to be only five daffodil growers in Ireland so it's not that much of a claim to fame but um, yeah, we're all about much of a muchness in terms of the scale Um, it's like a lot of, you know, there's probably five serious broccoli growers out there five serious cabbage growers the consolidation in the horticulture sector has forced that specialisation where 
where if you don't have a scale of operation, then you can't compete. When you say, you know, do we have the Irish DAFTA market corners, you'd be shocked to hear that probably 95% plus of my daffodils uh, never darken an Irish shelf or shop. Um, they're all put on lorries and sent, uh, exported out of the country. So it's one of the few crops that we can go toe-to-toe with any grower anywhere in the world. And it, funny enough, Brexit has been a great thing for my business of Dasta Growing because the UK is the source of 80% of the world's daffodils, but they have a serious problem on their hands. Number one, uh, getting the, the crop picked because they can't get staff or they can't bring in staff, seasonal pickers. And the second thing is, it's a pain in the face for um, UK farmers to try and export their products into traditional, onto the Dutch auctions, which of course is Europe. Um, they have to go through all kinds of phytosanitary checks and all the rest of it. So that's been great for the prices on the Dutch auctions where a proportion of my flowers end up and which determines the price of daffodils globally. Wow. So it's funny how Brexit has worked. I mean, I was one of the farmers out there who was quivering in his boots wondering how Brexit was going to work and what effect it was going to have on my business. But um, it's actually had a really positive effect on my daffodil business. That's Darren McCullough from today with Philip Badger Hayes. And on Morning Ireland, 2021 was a busy year for Kerry Mountain Rescue. Here's Mary Wilson. Kerry Mountain Rescue had its busiest year ever in 2021. A pandemic surge in outdoor activity is being cited as one of the contributors to increased numbers on the hills and mountains. We can talk now to Colin Burke. He's the PRO with Kerry Mountain Rescue team. Good morning, Colin. Good morning, Mary. It is fantastic isn't it, to have more people out and about on the hills and the mountains. But I suppose, unfortunately, it has led to to a very busy year for you and your your colleagues in Kerry Mountain Rescue. Just how busy? Well, we've dealt with 68 call-outs in 2021, which would be significantly above average. So our our average is typically between 40 and 45 call-outs per annum. So the 68 would, would represent the busiest year since the team was established in 1966. Wow. And will you describe some of the circumstances and some of the rescues that you've been involved in? So I suppose it slips, trips and falls and, and lost parties probably accounted for the vast majority of the incidents that we dealt with. Obviously, accidents can and do happen to even the most experienced mountaineers. But the main trend really we saw during the year involved a significant number of poorly prepared and, and ill-equipped parties on the hills. For example, in, in, in winter earlier on in the year, we had people who didn't have ice axes or crampons out in snow and ice conditions. And so they weren't able to, to gain purchase on underfoot. Colin Burke of Kerry Mountain Rescue talking to Mary Wilson on Morning Ireland. And that's it for Playback Daily. So mind yourself till next time.